Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 173 for December 4th, 2008. Listener feedback number 55. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Go to My PC. Wherever you go, access your PC and all of your files, programs, and email remotely with GoToMyPC. For a free trial of this award-winning service, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that looks at security <laughs> now. <laughs> Right now, right this minute, Steve Gibson is here. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. From GRC.com, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term, created the first anti-spyware program, has written so many useful security utilities like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Unplug and Pray. And uh, every week we talk about the latest security news and answer questions and, uh, and also kind of explain. I think you're really good at teaching what you know, all this one, is. one of our questions this week reminded me that I also wrote the very first personal firewall leak testing utility. That's right. Which was called, of, it was called leak test, leak not test. Surprisingly. <laughs> That's surprisingly. That's right. And there are now. Yeah, everybody's doing it now. There's a bunch of them now. Yeah. yeah. So we have questions, a dozen great questions from you, the people, the listeners to the show. And I love questions because it's a great way for me to. Um, uh, find out stuff that I didn't was too embarrassed to ask about. And uh, we'll do that in just a minute before we do. Um, uh, I want to get to some security news and see if there's any um, updates you want to give us. Before we even do that, though, I want to mention our friends at Astaro. We're so pleased they're back for another year of great um, you know, uh, advertising on the show. They are really a great advertiser because it's a natural fit. Astaro makes uh, the Astaro Security Gateway. The ultimate in UTMs, Unified Threat Management Tools. So I have an Astaro. In fact, I should I should pull it out for the TV audience. I have an Astaro. What is it? A one ten? I have a unit right here. And man, these things are they're built like they're bulletproof, thick gauge steel. They're about the size and shape of a router. In some ways, they work the same. Of course, they've got a, a high end firewall. In fact, they've got really the best in class in commercial and non commercial software. They've got intrusion detection. They have all sorts of content filtering capability. Uh, nowadays, you really, you know, we're seeing a lot of news about Cyber Monday. And of course, the reason Cyber Monday is a big shopping day last Monday is because people wait to go to work because the high, they want to use the boss's high-speed internet to go shopping. So maybe some of you would like to control that. Uh, and of course, you also nowadays, we really have to keep an eye on security uh, when our users are going out there and surfing the net or downloading email, opening attachments, and of course, three different uh, antivirus filters, two for email, one for the web, come with the uh, ASG. You get uh, in- incredible um, uh, anti-spyware, anti-spam filtering, really good stuff, and some additional nice features like automatic encryption, decryption, and signing using OpenPGP and SMIME, should you desire it, of all email. That's really handy. You really control your email flow that way and control your security. 
Uh, I, I could go on and on, but I think the best thing to do is to try one. All you have to do is call us, Starro, and you could try uh, get a demo unit free in your office. Just go to eight one eight seven seven the number four A S T A R O. It's eight seven seven four two seven eight two seven six. Non commercial users just go to astaro.com slash security now and you could download it and try it as well. Eight seven seven the number four A S T A R O Astaro.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. All right, now, Mr. Steve Gibson. Is there any security news? I think oh, there is. I've seen a lot of stuff. Bunch of stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to mention, we we talked in October, so that would have been a number of, of our episodes ago, about Microsoft's uncharacteristic out-of-cycle patch, which they did because they they discovered that a, a, a zero-day vulnerability, that was, remember, is one where someone is seeing traffic that seems to be odd and it's at it's in the wild addressing a vulnerability which is not at that time known so um this was something in the so-called uh server service the um the rpc the remote procedure call in the server service um of of windows and uh it uses port 445 and so there has been since this time a spike in port 445 traffic because there are now some worms and bots that are spreading and successfully spreading to exposed and not yet patched windows systems Mm-mm. there's a word a word a worm called conficker c o n f i c k e r .a and a bot program ircbot.bh which are have both been seen using this vulnerability to spread themselves. Oh, boy. Um, uh, interestingly enough, the, the, the worm goes in and fixes the bug. It patches it in RAM to fix it after it enters the machine so that nobody else can, can get in using the same exploit and kick it out of the machine. So it sort of locks the door behind itself um, after it gets in safely. Wow. So um, I did, uh, it, and I don't know whether um, the worm is is using completely random IPs. The the because uh, I haven't looked at it closely. The the best strategy that has been used in the past, um, and this was the case with the major worms that we had several years ago, was that the 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 agent would be combining looking at local network addresses, that is, IPs near it, and also IPs far away from it. Uh, the reason that's significant is that, you know, port 445 is the traditional Windows file and printer sharing port. It's blocked by many ISPs just for this reason, to, to protect their own um, customers from from this, and because you really don't expect to see people deliberately doing file and printer sharing of their machines resources out over the internet. Now, you know, thanks to ISPs blocking this port, you can't even if you wanted to. Um, and of course we would certainly think that any router would be blocking it and any firewalls and any corporate scale firewalls. But the reason worms will still use local IPs is that, is that if, if one managed to get into a machine, then it would like to propagate 
itself within the within the local network, not only out across the internet trying to find other vulnerable machines on, on, on the internet, because if you did have a single router protecting a LAN or a corporate firewall, for example, protecting it, but within the network, you were doing lots of of um, you know file sharing, and you and so you had holes poked in all of the individual firewalls that exist on the machines within the LAN. Then something bad could be propagating locally. So, you know, it's still a concern. I just wanted to bring it up. I think it's and you know it's an interesting note for our users, but also um, it's something you definitely want to make sure you're patched. I mean, these are unpatched machines which for whatever reason still exist on the internet. And it may well have been, for example, uh, IT personnel who are not applying out-of-cycle patches, even though the fact that it is out-of-cycle implies that it's something you really need to take a look at. Otherwise, Microsoft wouldn't have done this because they know how much it uh, it, it upsets the you know IP. Yeah. I mean, the, the IT personnel. Yeah, yeah. That's a big um, change. We also talked, uh, might have been last week, about this Vista kernel crash, which Microsoft has decided, um, actually they decided they're not going to patch it. They're going to let it go to a service pack, wait for the next service pack, because they're not feeling, at, at least at, as, as of the time that they were talking about this, that this is, represents such a big problem. You remember that you need to be an admin or have network operator rights on your non-admin account it's it's a inherently as far as anyone knows a local sort of attack that would that allows a kernel um, a kernel potential remote code execution although that has not been demonstrated anyway what has what has surfaced in the meantime is a very simple route command that anyone who's interested can type at a at a command prompt that will crash your vista your vista machine. Um, and the but they command, have to be at the term. They have to be at your machine, right? Right. Or or have a way. I mean, I could crash your Vista machine without it typing anything. <laughs> I just, okay. I just punch the box. <laughs> I mean, okay. They have access to your machine. So it's route r o u t e yeah. space add a d d space one dot two dot three dot four slash two forty space. 4.3.2.1. Okay. And if you give that route add command, that, that turns out that that's an illegal subnet mask for the network that was just defined, and it causes this overflow to occur in the kernel and crashes Vista. So Microsoft says, well, we don't care. We're, we'll fix it in the next service pack. So until it's an then, ugly bug, hope. but not really a real security threat. It's uh, a bug. Okay. It, it, it's a bug. And it's it's a bug until it's a security threat, Leo. So, so it presents, you think, a potential for a security well, problem. Yeah, I mean, all of these things, for example, this worm, th- this worm RPC server servers, it started as something that would crash the service. Right. And then they figured out how to turn it into executing code of their choice that was part of the packet that was arriving at port 445. So, you know, all of these things, I mean, you, you, you need to really understand them to know if they can't be turned into a remote code exploit. Um, you know, it certainly would be mischievous, for example, if email was crashing your Vista machine. And email could certainly give that command. So, you know, that's bad. Right, right. Anyway. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I just thought that users would get a kick out of knowing, you know, 
uh, route add 1.2.3.4 slash 240 space 4.3.2.1. Hit enter. And that's so it's over. I suppose. Yeah, I suppose you could attach that uh, as a Windows uh, scripting host command. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So you could send somebody an attachment with it would crash their machine. Yeah. Someone yeah. you don't like very much. Yeah. Um, although you could also send them. I, I would think you could send a program that would crash the machine. Maybe not. Yeah. Very good point. If they executed a program, well, yeah, it's harder it than it used to be. It used to be you could write to ring zero and stuff. Now you can't. So yeah, it might be harder yeah. to blue screen a machine than it used to be. I well, wanted to um, update our listeners that TrueCrypt, the program we love, uh, and I think we have a Q&A about it later on, uh, has been updated to version 6.1a. Um, all users of TrueCrypt are encouraged to upgrade. They fixed random little scattered bugs around, nothing terminally critical, but, you know, it's better to have these things fixed. And they've also added a, a feature that I really appreciate. They've given you the ability now to to override the default um, logon screen when you use the whole drive encryption and are being prompted for a password at boot time. Normally, it used to be that you just had this sort of this very uninteresting screen that you had no control over. And they decided, oh, let's let people either either blank that screen and or replace it with their own. So there's now a mechanism for doing that. So it allows you to sort of customize your whole boot encryption experience when someone turns turns a machine on and is presented with you know the, with essentially the the need to log themselves into the system. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was neat. Um, in a really interesting uh, and sort of freaky um, story, some students uh, who were screwing around. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, it's a uh, it's, oh, it's University of California. Um, using state-of-the-art standard digital photography and computer modeling, they have demonstrated that they can duplicate a key, a traditional you know, house key, for example, from 200 feet away by taking a picture of it. 200 feet away? 200 feet away, they can, they can take a digital photo wow. of, of, of a set of keys so you kind of and hide they, your key in your hand when you use your key. Isn't that interesting? I thought that wow. was just it just ran across my my radar. And I thought, oh, that's just too neat. And there was uh, a demo at DEF CON where they could take a picture and then, you know, cut out a key. But I but I 200 feet is quite, yep. quite a long distance. Did they have super telephoto lens and special cameras well, or was I mean, it just a regular old? I think it's I mean, what I like about this is at its core I mean, sort of irrespective of the details, it it sort of highlights something that we've taken for granted. And that is, you know, you and I cannot look at a key and go home with a file and file a blank key down into that size. But but, you know, computer technology, digital technology, digital photography and, you know, I mean, certainly this key that you take a picture of is probably going to be rotated and off axis. It's not going to be exactly face on the way you want it. You know, the technology now exists to model it from the photo, rotate it, and, you know, end up driving an NC machine to grind yourself an exact duplicate. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. That's really amazing. So you only need one side of a key. I'm looking at my keys. Aren't Maybe keys should be more three-dimensional or have 
double-sided things. Well, of course, a lot of fancy car keys. We went we went through the pre-electronic car key phase where right. there were keys that had remember like different so, different depth holes cut in them and um you know the the Those key hard to cars got a, like a wiggly slot down the side right, although right. it turns out that all of that is just sort of to prep the electronics because it's actually an electronic a handshake in many car keys today. Yeah, I have a chip so, in my key. You couldn't dupl- duplicate the metal and get into the car. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, traditional house keys and and keys that are just, you know, we'll call them dumb keys. Yeah, apparently you can from quite a distance away. <laughs> now we have smart keys and dumb keys. Um, Apple, uh, for the first time ever, posted an advisory telling their users that they recommend the use of antivirus software. And then this did a funny thing. One of the support pages of yeah. Apple. And then and they pulled said, it down. Yep. They said use <laughs> McAfee, Symantec, or Intego Virus Barrier were the three that, that Apple specifically recommended. And so it got picked up by the news. It's like, oh, look at that. You know, Apple has, you know, long enjoyed sort of this, you know, we don't, we're not such a big target posture. But it is the case that increasingly, you know, as as the as the people who generate these sorts of exploits also have apples you know it's as as we've said you really can't make an exploit for a machine you don't own and of course as apple has acquired a larger market share prices have come down you know they the the people who do these sorts of exploits have them now and so you know we're beginning to see this kind of trouble and certainly mcafee Symantec, and intego have jumped on and said okay you know we've got av for the Macs as well you didn't mention but the that that bulletin was pulled down shortly after they put it up. No, I didn't know. Yeah. No, I. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I and I think well, I think that what happened. The marketing department said freaked out. <laughs> said, wait uh-huh. a minute. <laughs> That's one of the things we say is we don't have viruses. You better pull that down. And it in wasn't. Fact, it wasn't in response to any particular threat, but it, it's good advice, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And speaking of which, um, I wanted to make sure that people who are iPod Touch and iPhone users. Uh, have got themselves updated. Probably it's been pushed out, but anything prior to version 2.2 has web-based remote code execution problems, which Apple has fixed with version 2.2 and later. Okay. Um, and lastly, uh, well, actually, actually two last things relative to form. We've talked about form many times. The the the, the pretty you know horrible. Um, ISP background monitoring behavior profiling and actually you know stuffing cookies all over your system and um, and in theory inserting their own ads onto web pages um, in a very controversial move uh, British Telecom BT who is the you know has been at the center of this controversy because they were secretly hosting form technology for proof of concept in, mm. in trials without notifying their customers. Well, there had been traditionally lots of activity on their boards, on, on their customer service um, uh, forums about this. Well, they, um, a couple days ago, formally changed their policy, said no more discussion of form will be hosted here, and they deleted all the previous threads of content that had been there and it just sort of raised a bunch of eyebrows. It's like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? I mean, that people are calling this censorship and, and getting themselves bent out of shape. 
Very good. And yeah. on that note, yes, on that note, I wanted to mention that there is now a Fireform add-on for Firefox. Fireform. Fireform. F-I-R-E-P-H-O-R-M. Oh. And does it block we'll, form? We'll find it, yes. Uh-huh. Um, it's a uh, uh, reading from the description here. It says Fireform is an extension for users of ISPs that deploy the Form WebWise system. It can add Form opt-out cookies to web page requests to avoid storing a Form tracking cookie for each website you visit. Uh, um, it can avoid Form WebWise.net redirects and protect your preference to opt-out from being overridden. If your ISP deploys Form's WebWise system, then we strongly recommend changing I. Um, oh, they, they, oh, and, and 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 they say aside from that, if your ISP deploys Form's WebWise system, then I, the author, strongly recommend changing ISPs as soon as possible. <laughs> so we don't we don't like this, but we do have an add-on that you can use under Firefox that will make it you know lots more tolerable. Yeah, great. Awesome. So two bits of errata, Leo. All right. You mean we made a mistake? A I have a note. No, I have a just, well, it's not really errata, but it's non-security news. Okay. I have a note here to ask you about NoScript. Mm, How yeah. you doing? A I week took later. it off. Uh, okay. I took it off. I did get a note from the NoScript folks who had, uh, actually, I'll probably put it back on an interesting suggestion. I, I'm a different, in a different category, though, than the average user. I have to... Uh, I I look at sites and report on those sites. So I have to see the site in its full experience. Otherwise, I can't give it a fair review. So I'm, you know, if I were an an everyday user, I would, I would absolutely use NoScript. And clearly the security benefit is great. And um, uh, maybe you already are going to say this, but the, the, one of the developers of NoScript sent me a note. Uh, Mark Zip is his name. And he said, you know, because I had mentioned that I was worried about missing parts of a website. He said in the NoScript options general section, there's a box labeled temporarily allow top level sites by default. Uh, he says, then try one of the radio buttons below. I use full addresses. This allows any script being run by a full address. So it, I'm going to try that because that will give me the full experience automatically. But I guess it gives me some level of subscripting of uh, scripting protection because any subdomains um are are turned off you could even get more promiscuous and turn off base second level domains do you, do you see what i'm saying so yep, www is, is this the note you're going to talk about no uh, although good well because i just was curious whether or not i mean i didn't know what your answer how about was you be. what's your experience been i'm happily using it and and plan to keep using it i think if i weren't uh, you know a journalist looking at sites and reviewing them i would be much more likely to use it yeah the only you know the only caveat is you need to sort of in the back of your mind remember that it's there, that it's there, you want it, and it's protecting you because, you know, you will go to sites where, you know, it doesn't seem like everything is on the page. And it's like, oh, and it's, you know, it's trivial to to either temporarily allow it if you don't think you're going to come back. That way you're not clogging up your your system in general. But if it's a site you use a lot, it's like, oh, okay, and you just give it permission and then, you know, everything's back to normal. So, I just think it's, you know, it's a great utility. I mean, remember that I was using something like this for years under IE 
using IE's zone system right, where I was, right. you know, and we, we talked about it before I switched to Firefox. That's the way I was operating. So I'm a little more accustomed to this notion. And, you know, as we know, I'm seriously anti-scripting. So right. I'll tell you what happened. I went to a site, I think it was during a show, to look at a site and parts were missing. And Oops. I, I forgot that I was running no script. And I started right. talking. I said, well, wait a minute, I'm not seeing. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and so it's just it's too risky for me to be running it and not get the full experience. That's just the risk. Part of the risk you, you, I pay for bringing you content. <laughs> <laughs> and my final note is I have an update on uh, my uh, one of my favorite sci-fi authors, Michael McCullum, who who does the sci-fi AZ site. Uh, remember that a couple months ago I mentioned that I was excited that the third book in the trilogy, the Gibraltar trilogy, which will be called Gibraltar Stars, he has Gibraltar Earth, Gibraltar Sun, and Gibraltar Stars. Um, uh, I finally um, sent him a note because he'd sent me something back in May, actually, and I'd, 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 I'd had it pegged to, to get back to him. Um, uh, and, I, and I wanted to offer my services as proofreader, because I would love to get my hands on the third of that trilogy. And so he says he'd love to have me proofread the book. Cool. Um, but what he also said was, he said he's been experimenting with the natural voice system. And, oh, and by the way, he's completely Kindleized. I also wrote to him about all my <laughs> recent experiences with Kindle. Well, you helped His, him a lot with that, I know. Well, actually, that was oh, back you helped with, him with Sony. Sony. That, yeah. Yes, that was the LRF format, right. the Sony format. Since then, he bought his wife a Kindle this summer, uh-huh. and he and he said she's bankrupting him with all of the <laughs> books she's buying, but That's she great. absolutely loves it. He loves the fact that it's got a built-in web browser in it, um, and so he now has Kindle versions of all of his eBooks, which excited me a lot. Now, do you, you, you know, do buy them from Amazon, or do you buy them from his Sci-Fi Arizona site? Just directly from his site. I didn't know you could do that with Kindle. Yes. Yeah, oh well, yeah, um, you're able absolutely to use any, um, uh, it's, it's the Mobi Pocket format. I can't I remember see. what the file extension is. Um, but and do it's you the, download it? Do you go to his site in the Kindle browser? How do you get it on the Kindle? You email uh, it to yourself? You probably, you could do it in any of the ways that you can. For example, you uh, yeah, could email you know. it to yourself. Yeah, you yeah. could just download it and then just dock it with your computer and, and move it over. I have never docked my Kindle. Not once. Uh, I did once to sort of explore it to see you know what I the format should. was of yeah. memory and so forth, yeah. and and to look around. But and I think once there were there were some clippings that I had that I wanted to get off of it, and so right. I used that right. in order to pull them off. But you're right. I mean, it, it's been more than a year now, um, or about a year probably since well, since I first got it. I got it in early um, November of of '06, and so and I don't know if you know, but they're once again sold out. They're ten I to saw eleven that. Mm-hmm. of backlog. You know Probably what that means? Oprah loves it. So no. that's sort of Kindle 2, I think. Ah. Yeah. Every, all the rumors are Q1, Kindle 2. Yes. And the 11-week backlog just about gets you right to where you'd want to be if you had another Kindle coming out. Yeah, that's true. So actually, more power to Amazon, because what they could have done is sold all those people Kindles. Kindle ones, and then you'd be really upset that you yeah. got that you missed. Yes, yeah, so sort more, of, sort of like Apple does all the time. Everybody does that. That's normal. Yeah. That's the normal way you do business. You you want to sell those old devices right up to the day you introduce a new one. Uh, and so, if if that's what, in fact what Amazon's up to, credit to them for doing that. Well, and so what what Michael has done is he thought you know there's one more format that I haven't tried, and that's audio. And so 
he is for uh, for these Gibraltar series. He is using Natural Voices Paul, which is actually it's funny because he and I chose the same voice. Paul, I think, is the best one that the Natural Voice people produce. He also slowed it down by one notch, as I do, and he's running the text of his books through it in order to generate. In the case of of the first book, I think it's a twelve hour audio file. And people have told him they would be very interested in purchasing his books in audio format, Hmm. even if a robot were reading them. Hmm. Well, we'll see. And frankly, it's, um, I mean, Paul is a very good sounding voice. I use it for notifications. If if, if either either my T1s go down, um, suddenly I hear, you know, in the same way that I have, you know, Fred doing Yabba Dabba Doo when a credit card clears for Spinrite, I hear, you know, uh, your primary internet link has gone down i think there's a big difference between a robot reading it and an actor reading it but yeah we'll see you know there's such a i think that this becomes from people who don't listen to audiobooks that think well it's just somebody reading it to you there's a perform it's a performance it's not just somebody and now here is book one of part it is it is a performance and that robot's not going to do that but you know it's if you like it audio and it's i mean god knows it's expensive and time consuming to have an actor recorded i wish i had the time i'd love to do his books well, you'd be good. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Maybe I'll do it in the evening in my spare time. And that wraps up all my <laughs> random stuff. Excellent. All right. We've got some great questions from our great audience. But as long as we're talking audiobooks, I really ought to mention audible.com, a great way to get audiobooks. And I, I think that's an important thing to emphasize is that what Audible does, they get the best actors in the business. Uh, there are people who this is their living. They perform these. They're also very well-known Broadway actors. Audible is in the, in the New York City metro area. They pull from the best actors in the business. It's many times they come into the Audible studios themselves. You know, some of these are recorded by uh, the publishers, but increasingly Audible's doing a lot of them. And you can tell there is a difference. I subscribed to a number of uh, different books on tape uh, companies, recorded books, books on tapes, one of them, Blackstone Audio. Uh, before I found Audible. And, you know, there's a real varying quality. I found it, recorded books was the best. Audible has bought, their, I think, their entire library. They have the best stuff. I just listened to a Larry Niven novel. In fact, this is the one I'm going to recommend because I know you like sci-fi. And Larry Niven writes great, hard sci-fi. He created the Ringworld trilogy. And I downloaded, this is uh, one of the cool things about um, about Audible. They have this uh, uh, Audible Frontiers program where they're getting these great audible books for um recorded for the first time ever they're going back in time and getting some classics um and i found one uh actually uh it's a few years old now that i had never read before called protector and oh, i leo what a great oh, book oh my it's i've read it like three times you need to i love it's the book. a very deep book in fact i want to listen to it a few more times it is a very deep book I don't know when Niven wrote it, but I could tell it's an older Niven because you always know the sci-fi is old when the guys are smoking in it, right? That's the giveaway. Well, and, <laughs> and, and this particular book, it's, 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 in general, he seems to do this. I know that when, he's, when, he's, when, when Larry has teamed up with Jerry Pornell, um, they've done some great books. In this one, you don't know what's going on. Right. I mean, you're you're led along, and you sort of think, okay, I'm not really quite sure how this is where what's going to happen. But it's got a real kick, surprise, oh. 
fun every thing. step of the way in a way it does i it's mean really good what i loved about this yeah 1973 niven wrote it uh, and orson scott card uh, picked it and that's that's where this is one of his selects they have this orson scott cards collects they're having a great sci-fi author select favorites of other of their of their uh, co- colleagues um one of the things i love about this niven's always been good older sci-fi i think is in some ways better at this about ideas, right? In fact, sometimes people say older sci-fi uh, is paper-thin characterizations and, and and heavily plot-driven and and not great literature. But it was always about the ideas. Well, and, and the thing that originally addicted the original first-generation Trekkies was that the stories yes. that Gene Roddenberry was creating. I mean, they were you know fundamental social, exactly. interesting stories set in that time. It's philosophy. Yeah, and in this case. Uh, this raises a, one of the many issues that come up in this book is the notion that if you were really smart, like smarter than us, if you were like a supreme intelligence, would there be any free will for you or would, in fact, every decision have a clear and obvious answer? So clear and obvious to you that you just have to operate automatically. And that's kind of one of the premises of this book. It is interesting to hear this spoken also, because there are some unpronounceable words. Yeah, he did it very well. The guy who reads it, Mark Sherman, Uh, uh, did a really, really good job of this. He does Brennan's voice so well that you just can't wait to hear more Brennan. I won't tell you who Brennan is, but you know who Brennan is. He's the oh, yeah. Anyway, he's uh, he's the protector, actually. It is a wonderful novel. I enjoyed it. And I know you'll love it. And you can get it for free by going to Audible Podcast dot com slash security now a very different experience listening i mean this is a performance you're hearing somebody bring this book to life and in this case um there's a lot going on in this book it, it's a it is a little hard to follow um I, I can see why you read it several times i'm gonna probably listen to it several more times but i was so engaged i would wake up at three in the morning and listen to more of it i couldn't i couldn't put it down protector by larry niven my recommendation for the week audible podcast.com slash security now you get it for free just sign up with Audible today, uh, and there are 51,000 books, many great science fiction books. This new Audible Frontiers and the and the recommends feature of these great authors is just one more way Audible is making reading so much fun. Or I guess you should be all listening. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. And now on we go. Mr. Steve Gibson, are you ready for our questions? Brave and true. <laughs> Oh, well, let me see. Did I close the? Uh, I think I might have closed them. Let me let me reopen the, the question. Question is, are you ready, Leo? Uh, apparently, uh, I, you are, <laughs> and I am not. How about that? Um, I have them here. I have them right here. Really, I do. Um, Steve, what Steve does is he goes through the list uh, at. He, in fact, you can go to grc.com/feedback and submit questions, and then you pick questions that are representative. Right? You're not trying to get just one. Often, it's a question that you hear the most. Right. Yes, it's very often. I'll see it over and over. It's like, oh, okay, fine. I'll, you know. Yeah, I better answer this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We'll start off with Art, shall we? He posted this in the news groups. A little different. Another great way you can participate. Uh, He asked about Sandboxy. We talked about it last week, about their help with people bringing USB drives into their organization. You know, the Pentagon just banned USB drives. Um, After a major breach. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and he explained that they uh, had had lots of trouble implementing this and wondered whether uh, there might be any way to sandbox uh, USB drives. Are there is there any way perhaps to do that? There really is. It turns out there are there are many features that uh, of sandboxy that we didn't go into in detail because, I mean, you know, I could just, you know, have bullet points for a whole show. But one of them is 
a a forced drive or directory and and it's used for example and and Ronan suggests for example that you could put the drive letter of your system's uh, CD DVD ROM in and it would automatically sandbox the auto run so that anything that runs from your CD DVD drive is automatically sandboxed and has no op- has no opportunity to make permanent changes to your system. Well, similarly, um, in the case of a USB drive, since they the drive letter can tend to float around a lot, um, what I would do if I were serious about this is I would put every letter in there, and you can make a list of these, so you're not you're not restricted. But every letter in there that isn't assigned permanently to a drive or a share, and what that would mean is when someone sticks a USB drive on and the system assigns it a drive letter, anything that you run from there is automatically sandboxed. Wow. Another of many features that's in Sandboxy. Would that then prevent any form of infection? Because so if it's malware that's being run, uh, it couldn't couldn't expose itself? Well, um, our topic for next week is what are the limitations of virtual environments? Like okay. v, like full on virtual machines and sandboxy. I I didn't want to. I, I realized in my excitement, which is you know genuine for sandboxy last week, I may have sort of oversold the what it can do. But so you know what what it does, it does really well. Mm-hmm. But it's done not to say that it, that you have nothing to worry about for the rest of your life. Even if the sandboxing were perfect, there are still things that can go bump. And so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. But for for this sort of thing, for example, just, you know, making sure that anything that might be run from a plugged in USB drive or from a CD that is 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 run, um, it's easy for Sandboxy, which is a, a service and a device driver. I mean, it's really down in the kernel sitting there watching so that nothing has a chance to get around it. Um, th- it does have that feature. It's just sort of built in. Yeah. Well, and you remember, I did ask him a little bit. Um, about uh, the idea how how it relates to virtualization, right? And he was clear that it's not the same thing. You know, it's a different kind of thing, but right. it's, but it clearly can be used. Well, I look forward to next week. That'll be interesting. Uh, Louis Gerard in Montreal confirms another listener's report about wider PayPal authentication availability. He's in Canada. He writes, "Hi, Steve. Following uh, up on your last episode, I successfully ordered my PayPal security key in Canada too." 10 business days, $5 Canadian. That's actually less than what U.S. users pay, he says. 20% cheaper. Is the, did yep. the Canadian dollar go down that much? Yeah. Wow. So, uh, great. Well, yep. I, I use mine. I love it. I just wanted to confirm, We again, uh, this is representative of a bunch of email that we received from people saying, hey, thanks for bringing this back to our attention. We're Canadian. And, uh, eh? eh? And <laughs> don't like say it. that they hate it. <laughs> Especially if they're from Montreal. They don't say eh in Montreal. Oh. Say, okay. Eh, eh. <laughs> Meanwhile, John Peter Hansen not having any luck getting the football. Hi, Stephen Leo. I am I'm unable to order a PayPal football. When I click to order it, I get the security key is currently not available. Please try again later. Message. This could mean they're just out of stock because they got security now. But I think I read somewhere uh, that it was only available in the UK and Germany. I'm not sure where John Peter is, but I'm thinking Scandinavia, perhaps. Based on his name, John Peter Hansen, Hansen. sort of sounds Scandinavian. Yeah. So, so it does sound like they are rolling them out. That they are expanding the geographic coverage. Um, 
I think it was originally the U.S. and the U.K. I, I know that there was a second region outside the U.S. Maybe it was Australia. I don't really remember now. But I think there were two regions, and certainly we know that it, that Canada was not supported because we have a lot of Canadian listeners, thanks to you know your right, exposure through right. Tech TV, and they were like, "Wait, well, hey, I can't get it up here." So um, now they can, and you know, in general, um, I guess it was when we talked to. Um, we had uh, we had did we have someone on from Verisign? We, we had did, someone. yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Um, and he was uh, explaining that they you know they just sort of have to do this incrementally. Right. Their goal is to have it you know available anywhere PayPal is. We love but, this. You know they're they're rolling it out one one country at a time. The idea being when you log into PayPal, you press the button on the key and it generates a one time use number that you add to your password. Uh, and and unless uh, somebody knows your password. And has this key, they can't get into your account. So that's really and I have great. To say, I have to tell you, it is so comforting, Leo. Um, too, I've been yeah. I've been active lately, uh, doing some PayPal stuff. I mean, it's the, it's the, tis the season, as mm-hmm, they say. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, to to have to provide that, push the button, give them your code. It's just it's the right thing. It's it's non burdensome. It's it's you know, you really you really wish that this was the way everything, all authentication net wide was, you know, up to speed and using because it would solve so many of these problems with, you know, keystroke recording. And we're going to be hearing about that, too. Yep. Yep. I agree. Uh, I'm a big fan, although I have a feeling that the hardware devices like the VeriSign card or the football may end up being superseded by um, things like uh, my bank uses SecurePass where they send a code to your cell phone. Everybody's got the cell phone. It's a lot cheaper for them to do that. And that has the same security uh, because they have to verify it's your cell phone number. You have the cell phone, right? That would be equally uh, secure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I use it. I turned that on all my, my accountants. Not crazy about it because she can't get into my accounts anymore. But I just turned it on on all my bank accounts. And the only way I get into the bank account is I log in and then it says, okay, you need to send your secure pass. We're going to you know press the button. It sends a secure pass to my cell phone. I then have to enter in that number and only then can I get in. Yep. I and- love that. It is. Uh, it's on the list of the authentication technologies that my future little true uh, that th- that my CryptoLink product will also use. I'm going to support all of this stuff in CryptoLink, and and uh, as, since it's possible for software to send SMS messages, uh, that'll be one of the ways that you can you can set up CryptoLink to require you to authenticate yourself. Excellent. So Excellent. zero cost there too, and of course pay- perfect paper passwords. So you could just have the little list of goodies in your wallet and, and use that as well. That'd be another way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Jared Burford wonders about maintaining a TPM protected PC. He says, you've mentioned in the past uh, about TPM fingerprinting uh, authorization and so forth. Well, I do agree. This is great security. That's the, the, the security built into the, the processor uh, and the, and the laptop hardware security. I see a problem. What if your computer needs to go in for repairs? How will the technician have access to the computer if they can't get past TPM? If there's a way to disable it, then maybe, though I doubt this is possible. Even so, you still need to access BIOS setup in order to accomplish this. Your thoughts? Well, there are a couple things. Um, uh, Jared should not worry that this is an unsolvable problem. It, 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 It has been solved, and in a number of different ways. TPM... We did a whole episode on it. Um, Trusted before. platform module, exactly. Okay. And it is it is essentially a little vault which is soldered 
in, in non-removably to the motherboard of an increasing number of machines. Uh, laptops typically have it now. Some desktops do. Um, and the idea is that it, in order for a system to be secure, there needs to be some place that software can't access, no matter what you do. Like even if you if you use a, a, a boot CD in order to avoid all all c- contact with the normal OS protections, there needs to be something fundamentally intrinsic that is like the last resort of protection. And that's what the Trusted Platform module is. And in fact, the way it's been designed is you can't, software cannot act, cannot, no software can access its contents. You can merely ask it to verify things. So, you know, you, you put data in and for example, there, there isn't a way to get it back out. You can only say, this is the data I think you have in a, in a secure way. And it can say, ah, you're, you're right. I do. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's been really well designed. The UI, the user interface for this always in every case I've ever seen gives you a backup. So for example, if, if your fingerprint won't scan, that is mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you know, maybe you only registered one, you're able typically to register your whole, both hands on, you know, all fingers of both hands. So no matter how badly, you know, you damage your, your, yourself, you probably still have one. Uh, you could might even be able to register the back of your knuckle, as some of our users have cleverly done. <laughs> when they, when Disneyland was asking them for their fingerprint, they said, "I don't think Dumbo needs my fingerprint." Um, but the idea is, failing that, you always have the backup of of manually entering your password, which hopefully is a big gnarly long thing. And so the idea is that the fingerprint is a shortcut for having to manually enter a big, gnarly, horrible password. So what you could do is, you know, either give that to the technician, which I'd be reluctant to. Obviously, you would change it once you got the machine back and and had it back under your control. But if you were going to change it, you might as and and you had like learned or written down the big, gnarly, long password, you might as well go into the BIOS and change it before to something simple. Since you're inherently reducing the security while your while your machine is out of your control to a hopefully trusted technician, and so after you do use your fingerprint or you manually type in your password, essentially that that unlocks the machine, and you then have the ability to enter the BIOS the way you normally would by hitting F2 or delete or or F1 or whatever the BIOS entry keyboard sequence is. So then you'd go in. And you'd have to give it your in, in traditional change your password mode. You'd give it your big gnarly long password, and then you'd give it you know hijack or something, uh, you know something simple for the machine to have. And you just tell the te- te- the technician, don't worry about the fingerprint. When it's asking for the fingerprint, just type in this simple password, and you can get to my machine to fix it. And then of course, when you recover your machine, you you reverse that process and put back in your big gnarly long password, which is always your fallback in case the TPM based biometric system, whatever it is, fingerprint or retina or who knows what uh, happens to fail. And you would give that gnarly long password to the repair guy. Um, no, you would, you would temporarily change your machine to a short password. Just give it to him. Give him that password. 
Exactly. Yeah, okay. He uses that. He never knows your gnarly long got password. It, it. You don't have to change it afterwards because right. you've you know you've removed it. Put in a simple one, or maybe you just take it out completely. Just shut down the password protection. Right. So you the can guy do turns that too. Off. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense that, I mean, Lenovo uses these. I mean, these are laptops that get, you know, or corporate laptops. It doesn't make sense that, that once you, you you know, install the password, nobody would ever be able to access it again. Uh, right. That would be a bad thing. There is a, there is a very good intuitive yeah. and sort of sane UI, which if you've implemented, if you basically, your fingerprint is a substitute for your having to manually right. enter the big gnarly long password, right. so, which encourages you to use a big gnarly long password. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I just read a uh, 10 mistakes that new Linux uh, or Unix system administrators make. And one is not having a really gnarly long, bad password, you know, tough, tough, tough password for the root and never log in as root. You don't need it. You know, they said it should be a password so tough that you have to insert the USB key, decrypt the USB key to get to the file where you've put the password and cut and paste it. That's how hard it should be. It shouldn't be something you could keep in your mind. Right. Uh, and that makes sense. Sam in Sweden wants to know how to really kill a hard drive. Hi, Stephen Leo. I have a quick question about how to properly scrap old hard drives. It's not, it's not so new, uh, difficult when the drive is operational. Then he uses D-Band. We recommend that. Derek, Derek's boot and nuke to wipe the disk clean. Uh, Google D-B-A-N. You'll find that. It's free. What if the drive has completely died? Hey, you know, I had somebody call the radio show with this question. So it, you can't spin right it. Uh, you can't obviously boot and nuke it because you can't mount it. He says, I've in the past done all kinds of things such as soaking the drive in various not-so-healthy not solutions, <laughs> physically breaking the drive, done some damage to the drive platters by drilling holes and whatnot. Is there a quick fix? Quick way. Somebody asked me, I'll add this, I'll tag this on, uh, if they could take the drive. Actually, you know who it was? It was Chris Kosach. used to work at Tech TV. Uh, uh, she used to work on the music show. She's married to Alex Wellen, the cybercrime guy. She said, can I take my old drive, no longer operational? Put it on the, they have a, you know this, Steve, because you've worked in, in, in audio, on the degausser that they use to erase audio and, and videotapes. It's a big magnet with a conveyor belt. Can I just put it on the degausser and degauss the drive? Will that work? Um, no. Oh, um, baby. Uh, a degaussing a drive from the outside won't. You, you really have to be in intimate contact with the platters. Um, so if you took the if, platters out and degaussed them, that would probably work. Yes. I'll, I mean, if you take the platters out, you know, scatter them to the four winds uh, or the four corners and, you know, you're going to be safe. What I would do um, to answer his question, uh, you can always pull the board off the bottom. So that's the first thing. It's easy to do. You know, I mean, you don't even have to be gentle with it. You're destroying the drive. So just take a screwdriver to it and, you know, pry it off, crack the board off, you know, break it up in pieces. Now, that's not by itself enough because the boards are interchangeable among drives of the same make and model. Um, the boards, however, are connected to the inside by a connector, and that is easy to destroy also. So destroying the, the connector just looks sort of like a, a dual inline set of pins, and you could just sort of scrape it off with the screwdriver, and that's going to further make it very difficult. But if you really want to go one step further and you have access to power tools, and I'm not kidding, simply drilling a hole through the drive, you know, like a, an inch or two away from where you can tell the, the discs are spinning, that's game over. And it, you know, it's, it, it turns out that the metals are all pretty soft. They're aluminum. And so it's, it's, you know, it's not like it's going to take, you know, some monster kind of drill. 
But if you'd simply drill a hole through, and while you're doing it, you might drill a few more, it's going to go through the case, it's going to go through all the platters, and there is no way that the, that the drive can mount and fly its head if, you've got, if it's got you know, a quarter-inch hole running through uh, the platters. And it just, you know, at that point, it's it's pretty much game over. Although somebody like the NSA might be able to use some sort of, you know, system to read the magnetic uh, markings on the rest of the platter. But it's true that, I mean, if, if, if pretty somebody hardcore. absolutely desperately had to have it, they right. could go in, take it apart, fill the holes <laughs> with something, maybe, maybe, so that the head would fly across yeah. it. But, I mean, it would have Seems to be unlikely. so smooth. I mean, yeah. and again, the only way you're going to do it is you have to fly ahead. Um Older drives, you, there were various things you could do where you could actually view the bits visually by by subjecting the the surface to various types of of polarized lighting. But with contemporary vertically recorded drives, that's gone now. I mean, you literally have to fly ahead with really good electronics over the surface. And if you've got some holes in the platters, there's just no way a head's going to fly over that. I think I remember reading that the Britain in Britain, probably the MI5 spec is they they de- they take apart the drive, degauss it, grind it up into a fine powder. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, they don't throw it at Go ahead. Returning it to its constituent <laughs> atoms is pretty much a good yeah. thing to and do. And then they don't even throw it out. Then they put it in a box and they store it in a safe in the basement just in case. <laughs> that's wow. that's a little overkill. Yeah. Not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Drill a hole in it. And that's an easy. It's actually just a few screws to open up the uh, drive, right? It's not a big no, no, deal. No, don't open it up. Drill right through oh, it. Oh, go through it. And, and I mean, that that's why I like it is in terms of like reasonable and seriously good is just take a drill and go a few times and it's it's over. But now you'd have to have a drill that can go through metal, obviously. Yeah. But you just go. So this is the drive platter is is that round thing. And you go you just pick a place there, a spot on the yeah, round with, thing. Normally, you, no, normally on any drive, certainly from the bottom, you can sort of see where the yeah, bearings are and, right. and that you're you're, you're going to have the disc platters, you know, radiating out from there. Right. And so just drill a few holes, <laughs> you know, it. an inch or two away. You know, it, it feels good. And, it and believe me, it is, you know, it seriously took care of that drive. We opened up a drive on the screensavers uh, for us for a, a segment on this very uh, purpose. And Patrick was going to show how to destroy the platters. So he opened it up. And what he didn't know was sometimes I didn't know this. Sometimes have glass platters, so uh, he hit the platter with a hammer and went Psh, and shattered glass flew everywhere. We were very lucky we didn't get hurt, right? So that, that you, have you seen that the glass platters? I thought that was oh weird. yeah sure wow. yeah and um, although typically they're aluminum. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, if you wanted to like disassemble the drive and pull all the platters out, you know, inside you'll find a hub. With a whole series of either hex or, or in some cases, Torx screws, you take all those apart. You know, there might, there might be, you know, eight of them. Right. And then, you know, then basically the platters will all come apart in your hands and you could, you know, step on them, bend them, whatever. But, you know, really, just <laughs> you don't need to do you know, that. drilling a couple holes through it, it's, it's over. Meanwhile, another Sam hiding in an office cubicle somewhere wonders what to do about his boss spying on me, spying on me. Sam is not, I hope, I, a, a pseudonym for Tony in the other room. Hello, Stephen Lee. I was wondering which anti-corporate spyware program you recommend. Anti-corporate spyware. Hmm. As there is increasing spying going on both in the office and at home, I feel my computer is not secure. I know for a fact some of the companies I work for on occasions, 
I am an IT consultant, use these kinds of programs. Uh, he references something called Spectre, which does sound kind of scary, to spy on their employees. I just have this uneasy feeling in my gut, and I want to be sure I'm not being spied on. Is there an easy way to check whether programs like Spectre are installed on a computer? For instance, some program that checks or warns you if something is hooking into your keyboard and monitoring it? That's the answer a- is, unfortunately, no. Really? Um, there, we, you know, we've talked a lot about rootkit technology. There are a couple bad viruses now that are modifying the boot sector and installing themselves um, before the rest of the system gets going. Um, we've talked about Blue Pill, which was jo- uh, jo- Joanna Rutowski's mm-hmm. um, sort of theoretical and and continuing to evolve work on on showing that it is it is impossible for programs to know if they're not operating on the actual native chip, but if they've been virtualized because because in theory there's no there's no kind of test you could perform that that you couldn't as long as you've encapsulated the the environment appropriately you know and she calls it blue pill of course it's very much like the famous sci-fi movie the matrix where you know neo and company did not know until they broke out of it that they were living in right. a simulated world right. so so unfortunately there is there's no, nothing i could say except the following which would, 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 which would save Sam. And the following is that if you were to boot one of these, you know, entirely bootable from CD or DVD environments, then, then that would never touch any resources on the machine. It would, as long as a BIOS is set up to boot first from a CD before it attempts to boot from the hard drive, and that's typically the default case, Although, you know, you might have a corporate environment which is really bolted down where the CD and and USB and floppy have been removed from the boot sequence, in which case, you know, you might be able to put that back in if you have the opportunity to get into the boot when it's, I mean, to get into the BIOS when it's booting. But but my point is that that the only way I know that you could safely use a machine is if literally you, you booted it yourself from a non-writable media mm-hmm. that had preference priority, boot priority over the hard drive. Mm. And so, you know, many of these boot, you know, the pre-boot environment um, solutions, and they're becoming increasingly mature. I mean, you can boot up a very workable system with networking and browsing and email and, and everything, you know, that runs off of a CD or DVD. So, you know, Sam, uh, if there was something that that you were doing that you needed to really know you were private about, and if the corporate environment wouldn't notice your machine had disappeared from the net for a while, um, you know that's what you could do. But if you just leave it in its de facto, you know, booting, and you're not sure what's been installed there, case, um, it's very possible for for good technology to hide uh, so well that you know it's undetectable by anything you could do as a user. Jeez, Louise. Well, there's a good reason to create a uh, Linux boot CD, right? Uh, and boot from that, and uh, even the then way- they can watch your IP traffic, and they might. Eat. I mean, there's also you could put a you know a, screen, a camera over your shoulder, or uh, we talked last week about Vanek freaking the keyboard, right? It's pretty hard not to do that. Yeah, so it's better just not to worry about being spied on, and don't do anything at the office that you would not want your boss to see. 
maybe get your work done and and uh, no. <laughs> well, all courts have held for years. Now he's a contractor, so it's a little different. But if you're an employee, you have no rights. You're using the boss's equipment, the boss and the boss's premise, <laughs> the boss's internet access. You have yep. zero rights. Yep. The boss can do anything he wants. Doesn't have to tell you. That's just the way it is. I mean, I usually tell employers it's good to have a policy, written policy. Make sure you explain, you know, what you watch, what you don't watch, what you allow, don't allow. But they don't have to. Well, and and when I've done similar sort of consulting, I've I've said to people, look, just bite the bullet, yeah. put a sign, you know, like a notice glued to the top of of everybody's LCD screen. We're watching. That's, Makes it very clear, you know, this is corporate com- corporate property. Right. You know, your use of is is, is at you know the discretion of the corporation. We reserve the right to log, track, monitor, you know, filter, do anything, you know, to all of your use of any sort of this computer. Just put it there, and you know, the advantage is everyone's notified. Nobody's being discriminated against, and and what it will do is it will tend to tamper down, you know, tamp down. Um, any of that kind of behavior that, you know, is inappropriate in the workplace anyway. Now, of course, if you're bringing your computer in as a consultant, uh, there's two concerns. One, that uh, there may be something personal on that computer, but also that they could put something on that computer and then you go to a, another business and they could spy on that other business or even uh, in, infect that other business. So it behooves you to have a sanitized computer every time you go to a new client, right? You want to sanitize it. Depending upon you know what you do with the machine while you're there, yeah. Would Steady State or Deep Freeze, Pharonix Deep Freeze, one of those programs that kind of you know you reboot and everything goes back to the way it was, would that effectively eliminate that kind of problem? Yes. Okay. So that might yeah, be another although, way. Although, I mean, depending upon you know, I mean, it it should, but I but I don't want I don't want to say like if well, they may not wipe the boot sector. You know, they I may. was just going to say if you boot something that someone gives you, right. you you know you've lost control potentially before Windows and Steady State gets itself going. Right. So, yeah, it it can be bad. It's an interesting challenge for somebody who goes from office to office uh, with his own system. Hmm. We'll have to think about that one. John D. I'm sorry, let's go to Patrick in Des Moines, then we'll get to John D. Patrick in Des Moines needs some clarification about hard drive passwords. Quick question about hard drive passwords, uh, the issue that was discussed uh, on 171 a couple episodes back. I'm understand, Am I understanding this correctly? The only way to thwart a hard drive password, and we're, we were talking about the, uh, the old IDE passwords, not TPM and that kind of stuff, or the built-in hardware, is via the manufacturer's intervention via a subpoena? From a government agency, if that's the case, wouldn't the contents of any government computer's hard drive, the Social Security Administration, for example, be relatively secure when that computer's lost, stolen, misplaced, or reutilized? Here's the part I'm unclear about. If the hard drive that is set to require a password is transferred to another computer that does not support this function, would the drive function, or would it remain locked? I'm hoping it would not function. And if that's the case, it seems like this is a simple solution to protect data. Thanks for a great netcast. I learn a tremendous amount from every single episode. That's a good point. Why doesn't the government lock its pass? It's hard drives. Okay, let me. I, this the issue comes up, and so I thought, okay, what I should do is to explain what the mechanism is, and then I, and then our listeners who are certainly smart and alert can extrapolate for themselves. the 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 mechanism is that in the 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 API, the application programming interface to the drive itself, you are able to say to the drive, hi there, um, I'm the BIOS, 
And here's a password that I'm giving you. And henceforth, I want you to refuse access if you've been reset or power cycled, unless I give you the same password again. So, so that's what it is. It's not, there's no encryption going on. It's simply through at the interface to the drive. Something says, hi there, here's a password. Henceforth, I, I'm asking you to require this password before you will accept any instructions except some basic ones like, you know, the drive ID instruction where it gives you its serial number, make and model and so forth. There are a couple simple um, sort of um, background characteristic reads that, that that don't contain any user data at all, which are which the drive is still allowed to respond to. But other than that, it will simply fail any request it receives with an error that says, sorry, you need to give me the password before I'm going to do anything for you. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what it is. So to, to, to give a drive the password, you typically need BIOS support. That is the, so the, the BIOS needs to, to be able to, to give the drive the password. But so, for example, understanding that model, Patrick asks, if I were to move that drive to a different BIOS, would the drive remain locked? Well, clearly, it's the drive that's locked. So the lockness goes with the drive. It follows the drive. And, and the, the, a, a different BIOS might use a different algorithm to translate the user-provided passphrase into the actual code, the, the actual digital password that is given to the drive. So because there's no real standard for that. That is the mapping of a passphrase into whatever pattern of, of binary is given to the drive as its password. So it might be that if the algorithm were the same, for example, same make and model of laptop, then you could expect to relocate a locked drive to a different laptop of the same make and model and be able to have the BIOS unlock it when it powers up. But it, it's equally likely... Um, and in fact, very likely, if you went to an entirely different type of laptop, that that drive would remain locked and nothing you could put into it that, that you could figure out to put into it would result in the BIOS unlocking the drive. Hmm. So, so the drive is inert. Now, it, now and, and relative to subpoenas and things, what this really means is that the drive at the interface, at the, you know, at the connector point, essentially, has been instructed, do not do anything unless we give you the, the matching password. That password is written in a maintenance area on the drive. And so that does mean that the drive gods, typically the drive manufacturer, but also third-party data recovery companies also, have the ability to go in and remove that password from the drive. With, with you know with direct access to 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 the drive and it's very it's very likely that there are undocumented commands not publicly known commands that make it easy for like the manufacturer to provide some super secret code that would tell the drive okay we know you're locked and somebody gave you a password but well, you know ignore that please so 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 it's I want to explain the difference in security 
between this and whole drive encryption. Whole drive encryption means that there is nothing stored on the drive except noise. And and doesn't matter, you don't even need the drive lock anymore. It doesn't matter what anyone does. No force on earth can determine what that data is if it's been whole drive encrypted, unless they, uh, given that it's been done correctly, and that the passphrase is not known. So what's there is just noise. But if it's just locked with, with a standard BIOS-level hard drive lock, then it's, it, that lock is carried by the drive, but it can also, the drive can be instructed to ignore the lock, um, not only by the, the drive manufacturer, but as I said, by you know, third-party data recovery companies have the ability to do that as well. They could probably just pull the platters, put it in a new mechanism, and be able to read it. The data is not encrypted. Exactly. The data is not encrypted. So so um, I don't know whether pulling, I mean, when we say pulling the platters glibly, it's very difficult to do that. I mean, it's... Well, but that's it, what they, people like Drive Savers actually do. They have duplicate mechanisms in a, and they have a clean room bunny suit environment and they can and take what, the platters and put them in a new drive. What they would need would be they would need different microcode for the drive because ah. if, they, if they pulled the platters and put them in a different drive, that drive would obey the lock which is carried by the platters. Oh, so it is on the so it is on the platters. It's stored on the yes. platters. Okay. All right. Yes. And and so so, so that's for that reason, for that. example, yeah. um, an easier thing would be just to switch the electronic boards. If right. the lock were memorized on, on the electronic boards, you could just swap switch it, which is very easy to do. Right. And then have it unlocked. No, it's actually on the platters. Um, that that's what they're using for their permanent storage. So, but you could certainly have microcode which ignores the lock. And so, you know, the and that this could come from the manufacturer or it could be reverse engineered. So there are ways around this, but it's it's sort of at, at the level of for example, it's like um protecting Wi-Fi with a MAC address right. lock. I right. mean, it's it's it would prevent people from casually reading the data, but it's not as good as full crypto which prevents anyone from ever being able to read the data. I've got a way for you to be even more famous. You should create the Gibson scale of crackability. <laughs> and and it'd have to be, you know, it's kind of hard because, you know, there's things like MAC address versus decrypting a password. I mean, you know, it's apples and oranges, but maybe you could make it in the number of hours it would take a reasonably sophisticated hacker to crack that, something like that, and create a Gibson scale. And you could say this is an eight on the Gibson scale or a two on the Gibson scale. Would you do that? No. <laughs> You'd be famous. You'd be famous. I don't want, I don't want the responsibility. <laughs> You'd be like Richter. Who kn- Nobody remembers who Richter was, but they know his name. They do, yeah. and they unfortunately rem- remember him at, at times of severe <laughs> trouble. Maybe Richter's not the best yeah. you know, example. Uh, let's see. John D. in Chicago, Ill, poses a, a great question about cracking decryption. Hi, Stephen Leo. With the recent discussions about various encryption decryption scenarios, I have a general question about knowing when a possible decryption method works. I think it's fairly obvious to figure out when something like a password crack works. By being able to use the password to gain entry into something. That's that's pretty oh, obvious. Yeah. yeah. Look, I mean it worked. Yeah. But considering both transmission decryption and file decryption, how does an attacker know when something he or she is trying actually has worked for file decryption? I assume it would deal with working with a file system and file metadata to determine what something is. In other words, it'll say, Oh, this is a, 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 the right form for a PDF file or a text file. 
For transmission decryption, I assume it would uh, be something like being able to uh, determine the uh, encapsulated frame, packet, etc., header information, uh, whether it's a viable transmission medium. These thoughts popped into my head while doing an encrypted file copy using SCP over a Hamachi connection over an encrypted wireless network. Thanks for the great shows. This is actually a real a problem, and it probably is an academic problem. How do you know when you've got the clear text? Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, that's what I loved about the question. I don't think we've had it asked before. And, and remember that the process of decryption... Uh, all the processes that we know of that don't involve, you know, a badly broken cipher, that is where the, where the cipher is intact, um, you have plain text, and one way or another, you are brute forcing, you're, you're, you're guessing one after another after another key, applying the key and the decryption algorithm on the cipher against the cipher text in order to get the plain text. So. The question is, um, how do you know when you've got it? Because essentially, it's not like the cipher algorithm says, bingo, I correctly deciphered it. No, it doesn't work that way. The, 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 al- the, all the algorithms that we've been talking about, you, you put, you know, it's sort of like garbage in, garbage out. You put something in, and you're going to get something out. The algorithm doesn't know anything about whether what you put in is readable or not. It just says, oh, look, this is binary data, and I'm an algorithm that transforms it into a different binary data. And so it's entirely up to the decryptor, to, that is the person who is involved in this or the system, you know, whatever the, 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 um, the architecture of this cracking project is, it's up to to something or someone to look at the data that comes out of the cipher and say, did we guess correctly? And, and so, you know, if, if it were, if it were just unknown data coming in um, and you got unknown data coming out, it might be the right unknown data, but you have no way of recognizing it. So, so John suggested some things, for example, if this was a packet, that was going through if and he talks about the headers for example and there he's completely correct because many forms of data have pretty well defined structure um he talked about file system metadata where you know you've got a you know in certain locations of these file system like in the old fat file system we had we had the file allocation table and the and the boot sector for example at the very beginning and and you know the directory at a given location, and the you know various structures which are known. Um, and in the case of packets, we have a, a, a known formal definition for the layout of a packet, where you've got you know the the source IP, the destination IP um, on the outside, or the source and destination MAC addresses, and so forth. So you know, and 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 relatively well formed structure. So in something where you, you have a sense for what you're expecting. Like if you're trying to decrypt a packet that you, you, that you snatched out of the air, you could, you could apply some heuristics, some, some rules of thumb to, the, the, to look at the output of each of your guesses of a key after it comes out of the cipher to say, you know, could this possibly be a valid packet? And there's enough structure that, you know, 
one chance out of many, many, many billions would you get something that looks valid but really isn't. And so, you know, that's enough to like for, for, for the system to kick out, you know, here's the key I use to get this. This looks, you know, this meets my, my, my first pass criteria for having properly decrypted it. I'm going to keep working while the humans come along and, and apply, you know, a higher level of judgment to whether this thing works or not. And similarly, say that it was just ASCII text. You had, it was completely unknown, ASCII text. But you had in, in, a, in a block of, of text, say maybe, maybe you're decrypting a sector, 4K uh, bytes. Well, even in 4K, there's many things about ASCII text, even if you don't know what it says, that are tip-offs. For example, in ASCII, um, typically uh, ASCII compresses highly because, for example, the high bit, the 8th the bit is, is always off. Most of the alphabet fits for, you know, typically fits within the first uh, 0 to um, 128 or 127, rather, uh, characters. So your, your high bit is off. Well, in a block of 4,000 characters, you're going to have, well, actually 4,096 in a 4K block, you're going to have 4,096 high bits. So if any decryption that you of something that you thought was just ASCII happened to suddenly have the majority of all of its high bits off, that's a, it's a, suddenly a very good chance that that you've decrypted it correctly because encrypted text, which we know is going to be highly random, encrypted anything is going to, on average, have 2,048. That is to say 50% of the high bits in the bytes are going to be on. The other 50% are going to be off. And it's going to be you know extremely regular. And so if suddenly you get a decryption of even something you don't know at all, Except here again, you know, we know something about we made we made some assumptions about what it is that we're we're decrypting. We're saying we think this is ASCII, and you know, when we get right, suddenly most or all of the high bits are off. So ah. it's like aha, you know, ah. the chance of of it being a wrong decryption where all of that is true is is just you know astronomical. Although so, I suppose somebody could uh, throw in a decoy where uh, this would be pretty tricky. Where it seems to appears in in the uh, to be a decoding, but in fact is this is it middle step to another decode? Is that possible? Right. Well, um, in fact, there was one of the things I said long time ago that was actually generated a surprising amount of controversy when I talked about double encrypting something. Right. Um, oh, I remember uh, that. Oh, we got so much email on that. One. I know people just they <laughs> all they pulling their hair out. In, in other words, you're double encrypting it, making it harder to uh, get to clear text. Right, because because yeah. I was taking the position that that if you double encrypted using different keys, and technically uh, you could probably even use the same key, although you'd like to use different keys for for more. But you know, if you didn't, if someone did not know that it was double encrypted, they'd only be testing it after a single decryption. They would never never know to do it twice. They'd but never again, see the clear text. Much better, exactly. You you never get clear text. You just get more random stuff, and they don't know that they ever guessed one of the keys correctly. So, so yes, you, uh, the more you obscure it and, and, and prevent somebody from being able to test, because this is the point of John's whole question is, in every case, it's a test you apply right. to what comes out of the decryptor, whether you got it right. The decryptor itself doesn't know. It just says, you gave me something, I gave you something else. It's what I think. 
Right. It doesn't know. Right. A human is needed. Right. I mean, it's easy when you unlock a door, it's unlocked, but it's not so easy with decrypting. Thomas in Stockholm, Sweden, wants to stay with the tried and true, but he wonders what can be done, if anything, to safely run older software with known security problems, uh, like, say, Windows 95, 98 ME would be a good example, but which is no longer supported by the manufacturer. Uh, his example is he has a ACDC, which is picture editing software, really a great program. Um, but it, but uh, he'd have to buy a new copy because the old copy is now no longer supported. Is there, a, is there, could you sandboxy it? That is exactly the answer to the question. I'm not yep. so dumb as I look. <laughs> That's why we keep you around, Leo. Paying attention. That's exactly what I would do. I would say to Thomas in Stockholm that yes, sandboxy would be a, 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 a perfect solution. You know, it's unlikely that he's going to get attacked through picture editing. You know, I guess he would be opening a picture like a JPEG where Sandboxy's JPEG decoder had a known buffer overflow problem. Which was in fact the case, yeah. Those have been known to exist. Um, But, you know, so that he's he's opening a picture that is a malicious malicious JPEG that tries to do something. Well, this is exactly what Sandboxy is designed for and why it's so cool that it's a general purpose sandbox that's able to sandbox not just internet applications, mm-hmm. but anything that you're doing. And so, yeah. I, and the cool thing is I've, I've now been using it, a sandboxy for several weeks. I see no overhead, no core, you know, code or, or Ram bloat consumption. I, I see it. Nothing seems to be slowed down at all. I'm using it for, you know, Firefox and, and, and Eudora, my email client, and they're all just running perfectly. So I'm I'm really pleased with it, and I'm I'm sure you could run ACDC in there, and just just have the confidence that if by chance you open you did open a malicious JPEG, uh, it wouldn't be able to do any writing to your system. It would uh, sandboxy would would protect you from it. Very cool. John Pitt in Melbourne, Australia, has discovered his zone alarm is sneaky and leaky. He says. Hi, Stephen Leo. I recently heard on one of your Security Now uh, episodes a recommendation to get a program called Wireshark. That's what is that? That's the old they renamed it. It was that used to be Ethereal. Ethereal. That's right. Uh, I did this. Thanks. And in addition to discovering the packets I was looking for, I discovered that Zone Alarm was constantly sending DNS requests and packets to its own server. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Even though I have another firewall running concurrently with no permission for this zone alarm behavior, the other firewall does stop zone alarm from contacting zone labs for the home phone home purposes, but it doesn't see these DNS requests at all. How are they doing this? What are they doing and why? Please talk about why zone alarm is so sneaky. I love to listen to your show every week and I hope you continue to educate people about the ugly world of Internet security. Hey, I'm a little disappointed in zone alarm. What are they up to? Well, when I saw this, I thought, oh, oh yes. This is something that Gregor, Gregor Frund and I once discussed as a sneaky way of getting data out of a PC Uh-oh. that firewalls would not block. Now, I'm still getting myself in trouble for having once many, 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 many years ago recommended Zone Alarm. No, it was a good program. You introduced me to it. Two point version two point six something was a great program back when you know Gregor and Conrad and you know those guys the original founders were there 
I liked them. I liked it. It now the company bears no resemblance, nor does the product bear any resemblance. Oh, so they're to, not there anymore. No, they they've sold out long ago. Oh, okay, and, and, and literally a bloated nightmare yeah. program. We no longer recommend it. Uh, you know what? I you recommend it, but we recommend it on the screensavers. I recommend it on the radio for years. It used to be a great program. Yep. Yep, and it is seriously in the past tense. What Zone Alarm is doing is it is deliberately using DNS to bypass firewalls so that it is able to contact Zone Alarm and their and Zone Alarm's end users are unable to block it. Um, the, the, the reason this happens is that DNS is one of those many things that uses the service host. So, th- so what happens in, for example, in XP, uh, in one of the services running is called the DNS client service, and so you must give permission. Any firewall must give permission to the DNS client service, or, or you know, your system can't do DNS lookups. And we know from having talked a lot about DNS that you know, email and web surfing. I mean, everything needs to use the DNS system. So. What happens is programs do not themselves use the IP system, the, the, the UDP IP or TCP IP system, to, to form and send DNS requests. Instead, this is a service offered by the operating system. So the program asks the operating system to please look up the IP of, of, this, um, of this domain name. Um, then the operating system does that on behalf of the application. Well, that means that the operating system has to be permitted to do DNS. And, and so what John has described is literally it's zone alarm deliberately being sneaky. Zone alarm doing something for the sole purpose of bypassing the user's control over its phoning home. And he saw this with Wireshark. He says that they're sending DNS requests to Zone Alarm's own servers. Well, Zone Alarm—the only reason Zone Alarm would have servers is to receive stealthful Ugh. DNS packets fr- from its customer base. There, what, what's the content they could send? They could send uh, lots they of information. Be, they could be sending anything they want, and it gets it's through because by- it's a DNS request, and so it just bypasses. Yes, it's because the DNS request goes to the operating system. <sighs> And one and all firewalls. Either you either if you don't allow it, you can't surf. Well, yeah, well, exactly. Either 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 the firewall. The first thing that happened when you installed it was it said, "I need you to give me permission for DNS," and you have no choice. You say, "Okay, fine." Unfortunately, Zone Alarm is deliberately using that permission in order to send its own packets containing Lord knows what. I mean, anything it wants. Oh, with, over which you have no control. That sucks. That's terrible. It, it's really bad. I'm devastated. I'm unfortunately not surprised. Uh, and a very good reason why you might want to download the free Wireshark. Um, I mean, you have to be somewhat sophisticated to use this, but this it's a packet sniffer. But boy, that's... And, with, and it's a protocol analyzer because it can... Or so, don't download it. Just get rid of Zone Alarm. Just say... Uh-uh. Well, clearly okay. we now know. Wow. Assuming that this guy is accurate in what he's saying. But it's well, interesting I, because you had that conversation with Gregor. Yes, that's we 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 were talking about this a decade ago. I mean, uh, or whenever it was when when Zonalarm was very young, we were talking about different ways of sneaking data out. Yeah, and it was on my list of of leak test enhancements for years. Wow. 
Um, and it's a known, it's a known way of, of, you know, getting data out. I'm disappointed to, to hear, but not surprised that Zone Alarm is doing this. Well, just to be fair to Zone Alarm, this is what a listener tells us. We, we haven't independently verified that they're doing that. No. And given the facts, this is my explanation for right. what it is he's seeing. It's yeah. interesting, too, that this other firewall is blocking the overt phoning home, right. but it's not catching this backdoor leakage of through DNS. And there's no reason Zone Alarm should be sending DNS packets to Zone Alarm. I mean, to Zone Labs. That's right. nuts. Right. Unless they wanted to send out information of some kind. But again, I just want I just want to make sure that you know, we, you understand we haven't verified this independently. This comes from a, a listener. Yeah. Uh, it, it wouldn't, and I'm not wouldn't, installing Zone Alarm on anything I've got. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise it's, us. But there are other reasons not to install Zone Alarm anyway. Right. Uh, wow. Chris in Detroit needs a bailout. <laughs> yeah. Join the join the club. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> I couldn't resist using that word. <laughs> Get in line for his friend's once infected PC. Hi, Steve. I love the Security Now podcast. I've been a long time listener. I'm having a few problems on a friend's computer. First, uh, the machine was the unlucky host to a virus. My friend installed somehow Comcast's internet security. I I can't, they relabel somebody at McAfee yeah, or course. Norton, yeah. which found the uh, virus and diagnosed it as Apple Hebi, H-E-B-I. It is now removed, but the problem is that whenever you try to visit Google, the computer forwards you to what looks like a Microsoft page saying you have a spyware. Oh, boy. Download our new spyware removal, but you know it's not. Any other Google site just ends up with a 404 error. Access to the rest of the Internet works fine, though. I was concerned. <laughs> yeah, Really? No, I was concerned that possibly the virus had changed his default DNS server's IP. I corrected that by sending him to open DNS, and I looked up the IPs of the servers on my own computer. So if his was possibly infected, it wouldn't send me to a fake open DNS. Very sharp. So I set up his DNS servers manually, went to Google.com, still no avail. How could this possibly happen? The problem has to be within the computer itself, and I'm at a loss for a solution. He's got antivirus 2009 is what he's got. Well, um... What he what he also said, I liked it in the subject of his note. He called it he called it pre DNS with a question mark. And so what this could be is nothing more than this thing made a modification to his hosts file because the hosts file, as, as we've often said, is where the PC goes before it goes out onto the Internet. And so if something said google.com and then gave an ip to this bogus google.com any attempt to access google.com would instead be be redirected to this foreign server and it also follows that other things that are google.com gmail.google.com or google.com and other pages well those wouldn't be supported by this by 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 the foreign um spoofed server so they'd come up as 404s but you have more specific knowledge about something that does this, Leo? Yeah, and uh, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, there is a um, removal tool called Malwarebytes, B-Y-T-E-S. A lot of people recommend. But you and I both agree on this one, Steve. It, what he tried to do, he got a virus, and he tried to manually remove it. All and bets are off. All bets are off. And oh, lo and behold, something's still wrong. You don't know what's wrong. You might have a rootkit. You might have... can't know what's you wrong. You can't. You've got 20 other things going on. Once I say this on the radio show, I want you to just tell me if I'm completely full of it. 
once you've been infected, really the only safe bet is back up your data and reinst- format the drive and reinstall Windows from a known good source. That means an install disk or a system recovery disk. Yeah, I was just going to say that the advantage is his system is running. So with a running machine, I mean, my point is that that many people have, for example, their hard drives die, and then they're like, ooh, I wish I had a current backup. It's like, yeah, I bet you wish, you know, go get a copy of Spinrite and pray yeah, a little yeah. bit. But, but here, he's got a working system. So he has access to his data. You know, as you said, get, you know, get the data off. All the things you care about, your programs, your My Documents folder, you know, all that stuff, get it off. And then the only thing you can really do to be sure is is rebuild the system from 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 scratch and uh, and then restore your data from a known and good frankly, source that you know can't be corrupted. Yes, like us yeah. install CD. There are a lot of cocky guys. Every time I say this, I get guys in the chat room say, "Oh no, no, I can remove that." And uh, and I you know there are a lot of guys out there, gals who say, "Oh no, I can get rid of anything. I have the toolkit." And yeah, you can get rid of things. In this case, you didn't. But let's say you did and everything seems to be all right. These guys don't want you to know they're on there. There's no you have no way of knowing that you're completely uh, cured. Once a bad guy gets on your system, he modifies all sorts. He can modify all sorts of stuff, hide things everywhere, and you can never detect it. Well, and and we are seeing a gradual escalation of the of the amount of, you know, because it because it's evolution of, of the amount of technology and effort being employed by the bad guys to to make their stuff harder to remove i mean in the good old days it used to be you know you'd look in auto exact exec and win any and and the startup folder and you'd take some things out of there and it would be game over you know nothing is running anymore that you don't know about oh that those days are so far gone yeah. i mean you know system files can be replaced with things that that i mean i've had friends who who were cocky like this, who have spent untold weeks fighting just because they're so stubborn. I mean, <laughs> spent, they spent so much more time yeah. than if they had just pulled the data Format off and the reinstalled. Yeah. And, and then, they, and then they, they, they call me and they say, Steve, I don't know what the problem is. You know, what's wrong? This thing keeps coming back. And I said, well, I know where the problem is. It's that you spent three weeks on this so far. And you've called me four times, and every time my advice is give up. You know, this is this really beyond you now. It is very possible that this is beyond, you know, the casual, oh, I used to know what every file is on my computer, and I, and I kind of still do. No. That, the, the program Apple Heavy is a rootkit, by the way. So. Oh, goodness. Yeah, we know it's bad. Yep. <laughs> we, we know you're in trouble. And what that means, just to remind our listeners, is it means you can trust nothing that you see. The rootkit means it's down in the operating system. It is filtering the operating system's own use of itself. So when you do a directory, when, when you bring up a listing, nothing that you see can be trusted. And, and, it, and you know, because, you know, the rootkit is in there making the OS lie to you about its own condition, about the files it has. You, you, can, you can no longer trust it. The only thing you could do w- w- would be to boot something, as, as we said earlier in this show, boot something off of, off of a CD that allows you to inspect the hard drive and the file system 
so that you're not running the OS itself. You're running a different OS coming from a read-only medium, and then then you've got a chance of seeing reality. But uh, again, scraping this thing off, and in this case, you want to make sure that your boot sector is cleaned as well, and and the first track of the hard drive. Mess, just a mess. A mess. Yeah, I I you know I was that cocky guy many years ago, and I, and I learned my lesson. Well, and we all were because sure once used to be able time, to do it. Once upon a time, it was feasible. It is no longer feasible. That's that's really the bottom line. We got another question. I want to talk more about Sandboxy. And, uh, and, and, and really, the question is, if you have Sandboxy, do you need NoScript? Securing your system, we're going to talk about it in just a bit. But first, I want to talk about go to my PC. Go to my PC from the great folks of Citrix. We, we talk about them all the time. They do, uh, as you probably know, the great go to meeting. Go to my PC is remote access done right. Let me tell you, they are fantastic. It's Citrix. So here's the deal with go to my PC. Uh, you install it. It takes you about, I would say, two minutes. In fact, if you start right now, you could probably uh, get it installed. In fact, go to here's what you do. Go to go to my PC.com slash security now. I'll race you. Start start installing. Why? Oh, I'll tell you why you want to install this. So it's a, it allows you to access this computer from anywhere. Now, the holidays are coming. You perhaps would like to go home a little early, maybe, on Friday. Spend a little more time with the family. Enjoy life a little bit. Go to my PC. lets you do it. If you're traveling, it lets you access your office system. Any You can log on anywhere. At an internet cafe, uh, at a hotel, places that you would normally say are completely insecure. Actually, somebody asked me, uh, on the radio show, can I use Go to My PC as a VPN? Yes, you're 128 bit SSL encrypted from your computer, wherever you are, to your office machine. And at that point, you surf the net, whatever. You're completely secure, right up to your office machine. So it's like a VPN, but but it's better because it lets you send and receive email, run any program. You see your office desktop, full screen, right there, just like you're there. Uh, anything you could do at work, you could do at Go to My PC anywhere you go. That's why PC World gave it their world-class award for best remote access software. It truly is. I want you to try it free for 30 days. It'll get you right into the new year. Go to gotomypc.com slash security now. Give it a try. And you let me know what you think. 30 days unlimited. No limit on how much you can use it. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank security now so much for supporting. We thank go to my PC so much for supporting uh, the security now program. All right, our last question, Steve Gibson, and it's a good one. It's actually one I, I think I wanted to ask you last week. Ken Harrington, Herndon VA, says, well, if you use Sandboxy and it's so good, why do you need no script? Steve, thanks for your recent show on Sandboxy. It looks like a great product. The question is, doesn't it make no script redundant? I understand, uh, if I understand it correctly, even a nasty JavaScript can't do any damage if it's trapped inside the sandbox. Can I just uh, uninstall NoScript? Well, this being the last question, it is a bit of a segue into next week's topic, Ah. which is the limitations of of the use of virtual machines and any sort of sandboxing program like Sandboxy. Uh, But to answer Ken's question um, on this exact topic, you you can make a differentiation between... And, and arguably these terms are a little similar, but, you know, security and privacy. Um, I would say that that Sandboxy is not an enforcer of privacy because things running in the sandbox have full read access to your system. 
unless you deliberately block them. Uh. There is the ability. One of the other features of Sandboxy is you can, if you've got like, you know, you don't want anything to access your My Documents folder, you can easily put that in block access. And then something running in the sandbox will not be able to access anything under your My Documents folder and the whole tree of, of things below it. So that's a, yet again another cool feature of Sandbox that we've never talked about before, the ability to deliberately blind things in the sandbox to some aspects, uh, as many as you want, um, of your machine. Um, but whereas um, where I would say that is a, a security benefit, it's, uh, Sandbox is not providing a privacy benefit. And that's one of the things that not allowing scripts to run, um, a browser with no scripting um, and no other, you know, known security vulnerabilities that are being exploited. You know, it, it is a read-only device, too. It's showing you static pages, which are not able to run any code coming from a, a remote location. So there's, there's nothing, there's no way for information to get out of your system and back out. But if you're running scripting, then there's the potential, at least, um, to f for for the scripting itself or for the scripting to invoke other um, modules in the system that have um, discovered vulnerabilities and use that to get data out of your system. So even though and so and notice that if something has access to your system, for example, it could be it could look at the other pages that are that are loaded in your browser. Um, maybe one page in your browser has the op has the ability to watch you enter username and password into a different page in your browser. So even though all that activity is constrained within the sandbox and nothing is making a permanent change to your system, it could still do some damage. So I really see both NoScript and Sandboxy as as companions to each other, and neither one uh, rendering the other obsolete. There you go. And why not use both? After all, yeah, you, you got exactly. It. Unless, unless, unless you're you, Leo. <laughs> I don't use either. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. I'm okay. Now I hear I have Mr. Born Again Firefox user. It's like, oh, <laughs> I do use what's wrong Firefox. Everybody? I do use Firefox. Yeah. And I and I and, you know absolutely uh, uh, you know I probably use uh, NoScript at home. I'll tell, yeah. I don't I don't feel too much at, at risk. But, but anyway, we'll see. Hey, well, you, um, and are, you and I are both safe, and we don't go in strange, yeah, dangerous. I'm pretty locations. careful about what I do. And yeah. all that. Hey, we have come to the end of our show, but not uh, not the end of security. Now, you know, if you go to grc.com, you could find 175 something like that, 173 issues. Go back in time and listen to them all if you haven't. They're 16 kilobit versions to make your downloads quick. If you don't mind the kind of reduced audio quality, of course, the full 64k bit version as well. And transcripts, if you like to read along while you listen. Some people like to in absorb information through their eyeballs. You can find that, too. GRC is also the home of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. We didn't do a SpinRight letter, did we, today? I just had that thought. You're right. We didn't. <laughs> do you want to do one? I've got one. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hear it. SpinRight yeah. is such a great tool. We use it all the time. I mean, I'll give you a testimonial. We use it all the time around here. I found a, I, I found a really fun one. Um, uh, from a guy in New Zealand whose name is Hamish. He said, Hi, Steve. As a loyal Security Now listener from the very beginning, I've been aware of SpinRight and its stories for miraculous recovery for some time now. I've owned a copy for a while and used it occasionally on misbehaving hard drives over the years. 
Recently, I got, oh, and the subject, uh, th- that's what, it was uh, Spinrite Saves Lunch. Was, <laughs> I like I it. Thought, okay, <laughs> I got to read this one. I got to find out how Spinrite Saves Lunch. So he says, recently, I got a call from the school cafeteria where I work, where I work, telling me their computer, which runs their cash register software, would not boot up. This was about half an hour before the cafeteria was due to open and be filled with hundreds of hungry students. I raced over to the cafeteria with my Spinrite CD in hand, popped it in, crossed my fingers, and made offerings to several gods (laughs) in the hope that my students would not go hungry. After about 20 minutes, it's a small drive, only 4 gig, Spinrite said it had finished and repaired a couple of problems. With bated breath, I rebooted the computer, and up it came, loading the register software and allowing students to buy their lunches. Ten minutes later, students filled the room and ordered their lunches, unaware of how this wonderful hard drive recovery utility saved them from an afternoon of grumbling stomachs. Thanks, Steve, for such a wonderful utility. I do like that. Spin right saves lunch. Spin right to the rescue. GRC.com. You get your spin right there. You get your free software utilities and, of course, shields up and all that great stuff. It's a great site. Highly recommend it. Steve will be back next week. And next week, we're going to talk about virtual machines, what they can and cannot do right, to protect you. Don't forget, you can listen to Security Now and not only download it from twit.tv and GRC.com, you can subscribe to it in iTunes. If you want to hear it every week, that's the best way to do it. Just do a search for Security Now in the iTunes store. Absolutely free. And uh, and uh, we can uh, watch it live if you if you're really a glutton for punishment. Watch us do the show live in video. You can see Steve's shining face every. We do it every uh, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. That's no, I'm sorry, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's uh, 11 a.m. Pacific at live.twit.tv. Steve, thanks so much. We'll see you uh, next time. Righto. Security now.